Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Christopher Kelsch, LA Opera's Sebastian Paul and Mary Musco president and CEO, chats with internationally acclaimed tenor and LA Opera artist-in-residence Russell Thomas about careers and access in opera, as well as Mr. Thomas's journey to the operatic stage. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation with Russell Thomas. Extremely well-known, of course, uh, to Los Angeles audiences. We were blessed enough to have Russell in leading roles, uh, starting in 2015 with Norma, and then in kind of a regular cadence uh, with us uh, coming back in 2017 for Coverdosi in Tosca. Extremely memorable performance, one of my favorite productions in our history of Clemenza de Tito, of course, singing that very punishing title role. And then uh, really our, our great good fortune is that uh, Russell is now a more ensconced member uh, of the LA Opera family, uh, of course, having been named our artist in residence. And while Russell's official capacity in that role didn't begin into July, um, he did such incredible work for us uh, during the pandemic, starting the previous January, so many incredible programs that he did for us online. And then, of course, it was in those months that he was conceiving some of the programs that have launched under his name, including the Russell Thomas Young Artist Training Academy focused on high school students uh, and the HBCU Career Comprehensive, which is an online program uh, which launched in August of 2021. Russell is actually here, and I want to be able to dive into uh, the conversation with Russell uh, to thank him for all of his contributions, uh, not only to the LA Opera community, but to opera in general. I would say by way of introduction, it's it's just really a huge privilege to have sustained contact um, with an artist of this caliber. And the thing that I most love about my job is to watch the evolution of an artist. And I just think that with every successive production uh, that Russell brings to Los Angeles, but then every successive performance, he just shows a greater depth of polish and artistry. And I'm just so, so, so grateful that he's chosen uh, to spend so much time with us. So welcome, Russell. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. I'd love to actually orient people to your beginnings. You're now one of the leading tenors in the world. You're singing all of these incredibly challenging roles on all the world's leading stages. How did this journey actually begin for you? And uh, when you first were introduced to opera, did you have a clear vision that this might be the, the path for you in your career? Well, I wasn't necessarily introduced to opera. Uh, I sort of stumbled upon it. And in the beginning, no, I, I didn't think that this was a natural evolution or normal and that I would be an opera singer one day. I know that I was in love with it from the age of eight. Uh, I saw my first opera when I was 12. And, you know, that was the time that, you know, I reached over to my grandmother and said, I'm going to do this one <laughs> when I get older, <laughs> you know, when I grow up. And of course, as good grandmothers do, she said, of course, baby, of course, you're going to do that. <laughs> you know, uh, when I was in high school, actually, it was my senior year of high school, actually, a woman who was a professional opera singer, Joy Davidson, came to help with our solos uh, for, you know, solo and evaluation. We have this thing uh, that most high school students do when they're in top choirs. And she was helping with solos and she heard me sing and she thought, she stopped within 20 seconds or so and said, you should be an opera singer. Has anybody ever told you that? 
And and that was all I needed to hear. And and sort of the rest just took place after that. What was that first introduction at age eight? How did you stumble on it? On the radio. On the radio. I came home from school one day and was going to the radio to listen to some R&B or something. And uh, and then as I was flipping through the stations, uh, because my grandmother is a devout Christian and a, a preacher, and she always had the radio on some gospel station, which is usually an AM or the very low numbers. And as I was going to wherever I was going to listen, uh, I stumbled upon people singing kind of funny and with the orchestration. And I just listened to it. Then the next day I came back and I found the same radio station. And I listened again and I listened again and again and again. And every day there was something, not always awkward, but there was classical music on the radio, some leader recital or some orchestra, some uh, symphony. And I would listen every day uh, and it became sort of a habit. And my grandmother noticed that habit and she would, you know, when we go to the mall or something, we'd stop in the record shop. If you remember those things, uh, we would stop in the record shop uh, and I would get a CD or a cassette of, you know, greatest Verdi choruses or <laughs> Maria Callas greatest hits kind of thing. Uh, and sort of that, that sort of developed my love for the art form. And there was no precedent in your family for a love of classical music. This wasn't this wasn't native to the to the family. There wasn't anyone besides her encouraging your passion. No, none at all. Uh, no one, actually, no one sang in my house except for me, and I was sort of the opener for my grandmother <laughs> on Sunday mornings and on when she would you know travel around to different cities to preach. I would go with her, and I would be the opener. I would sing a song or something. And then she would come in and she would preach. And that was sort of our, our you know, tag team duo sort of situation. Yeah, no, I was the only person in the family that had any sort of, well, that anybody thought had any sort of talent in that regard artistically. And the first, your first opera going experience was at 12? 12, it was Carmen. It was Carmen. At New York City Opera. Grand opera? Oh, no, it was in New York City Opera. We were on vacation with my next door neighbor, who was also my godmom. She lived in Brooklyn and um, and also in Miami. When it got cold in, in New York, she would come down. <laughs> she would come down to Florida, and we were visiting once uh, in. We were visiting New York, and you know, she said, "Oh, he likes opera so much. You should take him to Lincoln Center," and she did. And it was Carmen. I don't know what what was it about the spectacle of it all, seeing people dance and seeing and and the entire production. It, I can still see it to this day, and I'm 45 years old, but I can still see that production and those those singers and those dancers. It was it was that it left that much of a mark on my brain. But it's it's also hard not to back engineer a sense that there's the hand of fate in that, right? When when you're moving through that radio dial and it catching your ear like that, that to me, frankly, sounds like that sounds like kismet. Because for that to drop out of the sky and it for it to to light up your imagination, that yeah, it it, it feels like fate. Yeah, I feel like it was supposed to happen. You know, um, in my family, things that are supposed to happen, as 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 we are always taught, and as good Christians, if we do what we're supposed to do, <laughs> things that are supposed to happen will happen. And um, and that was one of those things that I think was supposed to happen. I was supposed to hear opera. I was supposed to hear and see maybe Carmen and not something before that. It was supposed to happen that way. I, I want to skip back to your journey, but just just thinking, you've shown such an incredible um, commitment 
to encouraging young people um, and of building bridges of opportunity for young people? Is this really driven to some degree by your own personal story and that to some degree your grandmother was encouraging this and so she was building a bridge to a different world for you? I think so. I think it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of things I play with that. Uh, one, I didn't have voice lessons at a very early age and uh, I don't think my family could have afforded voice lessons. I never asked for it for them. When I got to middle school, I joined the band and I played trumpet and, and I trombone and I would, I'm a better singer than I am a trumpet player for sure. <laughs> but I was a better trumpet player than a trombone player. And I thought, you know, I was in marching band in Florida. You played, played sports or you joined a band or you're, you know, were cheerleader, you know, everything is outside and we have all this big, these fields and, and everybody plays a sport. And um, my sport was football, but I would have much rather be in the band. And that's, that's sort of what I did. My grandmother was uh, always encouraged me uh, still to this day, always encouraging me to go for it. Uh, and I know a lot of kids don't have that kind of support. Uh, I didn't necessarily have that support after I left my grandmother's home from other family, like my own mom or whatever. I didn't have that support to like encourage me to keep going for this, utilize my talent and go for trying to be an opera singer. If I had had that support uh, with voice lessons and with learning music very early, I think I would have probably excelled even quicker if I had that, those opportunities. And so I'm trying to find ways that other kids who didn't have those opportunities could uh, get the support they need to grow their talent. And even if they're not getting that support necessarily at home, there's, there's a community that's being built for them to get that, that support. Uh, when I got to college, I met other really nice old ladies at the social clubs that, that you know, gave me, raised money for me to go to Aspen and raise money for me to do my first audition trip to New York and those kind of things. And, and having those people in my life was beneficial. And, and really, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to audition for, you know, all the young artist programs that I did at an early age without their support because they raised, you know, money for me to go to New York and have a hotel stay and have a flight and pay for pianists and that kind of thing. So those kinds of experiences and those people that have been in my life over the years have encouraged me to, be that for other people or create opportunities like that for other people. I think that one of the reasons why this is so admirable to me is that actually, to some degree, you know, you and I are both products of public education and we are products of public education in an era in which there was real investment uh, and a real emphasis placed on arts and, and opportunity within the arts. Certainly in California, that that is no longer the case. And so in a way, you know, there are fewer pathways for young people to actually be exposed to sample uh, different opportunities and to be exposed to so much of the classic arts, which is actually why I find your commitment to this e even more admirable, because I think it's needed now more than ever, because there's been a kind of abdication of a sense of public responsibility in providing access. I agree with you 100%. I mean, and even in Florida, uh, by the time my sister got out of high school and graduated high school, arts or that requirement to have an arts you know, elective was gone. You know, you didn't have to. And so kids didn't know anything other than, you know, musically, if they didn't go seek it out, they didn't uh, have that exposure. I'm interested in the idea that when you look back on your career path, you think that maybe access to some of these opportunities would have given you a little bit of a fast forward button. Can you describe what steps you might have skipped in your artistic journey if you had had some of that 
uh, earlier on in your career? I don't think it would have necessarily skipped steps. I think what would have been, it would have been useful in those first years of undergrad, having had exposure to, you know, reading music and some basic keyboard skills and understanding how to learn a song, you know, those kind of things would have been uh, beneficial to me. The time that it took me to have to learn that and the hurdles of having to learn that uh, would have been lessened. Uh, in our, for instance, in the Yada program that we do, the Russell Thomas uh, Youth Artist Academy program, we're teaching them, you know, music, basic music theory, you know, how to read music, how to look at a staff of music and see the notes and rhythms and know what they are. If I had known that as a senior in high school, when I got to college, it wouldn't have been such a shock. I learned them, but I was behind a lot of my colleagues in school. Yeah, what's, I mean, frankly, interesting to me about that assessment is that you're renowned for being such a consummate musician to the degree to which it goes well beyond instinct. I just think that how, however you absorbed that, you are universally acknowledged as such a rock-solid musician so that how, however it came to you, it certainly has stuck. Thinking kind of about your training journey, was there a moment at which things started to click for you when you started to understand frankly, just how, how good you were and, and how to start to, to channel that, that potential? I wouldn't say how good I was. I would say that, again, in undergrad, my first couple of years, probably like everybody, I was a bit of a partier. And I went to school in Miami where I grew up. So I knew people uh, and I was just partying a lot. And I met in my sophomore year, Elaine Rinaldi, who's become a great mentor of mine, a conductor pianist. And and she heard me sing and she said, you know, basically, you have some real talent. Either you need to do it or, or move out of the way for somebody else uh, if you're not going to take this seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, it will be a waste because you have such talent. And that was the first time someone outside of a school setting had acknowledged that talent. So I figured, you know, this woman's working professionally in opera. She has to know what she's talking about. You know, she was a course master and associate conductor at Florida Grand Opera. Um, when I was in undergrad, my voice teacher at the time also said the same thing. He said, you know, you really have an opportunity to make a career in this and not very many people do. A lot of people think they have the talent, but you actually have the talent and it would be a shame if you wasted it. And so it was that summer that I went to Aspen and saw basically all these kids from top conservatories singing. Uh, and I knew that I had to elevate my level be it music, my musicality, be it uh, vocal technique, all of those things, I knew I had to elevate it if I wanted to be competitive after that point, after I left school. I knew I also didn't want to go to grad school. I just knew I didn't want to. So in order to make that happen, I had to work hard. And and from, from my sophomore year to my senior year um, in undergrad is when everything sort of happened for me in terms of taking the musicality series, like learning how to be a musician, you know, figuring out the technical things that didn't work and learning how to figure it out. Also listening to recordings of singers. I'd always done that, but I'd never done it in a way that I, where I was really paying attention and watching videos as well, pre-YouTube with on VHS, you know, watching VHS of great performances from Lincoln Center or the Richard Tucker Foundation Galas and watching these singers do it and learning how to sort of analyze technically what they're doing to see where my own deficiencies were. So it was a lot of trial and error, but from, from my sophomore year in undergrad is when it sort of clicked that I needed to do more and that people outside of school 
thought that there was uh, talent there. Yeah, I mean, you, you've identified something that I find to be the most uh, miraculous aspect of beyond the superhuman thing that, that we ask of you to do um, night after night. But one, one is the is the discipline. And the second one, which I find amazing, is the ability to sort through so many different uh, aspects of input to be able to listen to all those recordings, but somehow be able to cut the wheat from the chaff in a way of what I can take from that and apply to my own work. I mean, you were you were a young artist at one point. You work with young artists now. I think one of the most challenging uh, aspects uh, when you're still in a training mode is uh, who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Who unlocks something uh, for you where you start to gain that confidence? And then, and this is, of course, you know, you're in the middle of it, of it now, but you're getting so much um, conflicting and contradictory information from a coaching staff, from a voice teacher, from a from a conductor, you know, from a member of music staff. Really, really, really successful musicians and singers like yourself find a way to navigate that, holding on to the core of their artistry, and kind of just just skimming off the top that which they find useful and that which they have to discard in order to stay on the right path. And that that level of clarity and discipline I find to be extraordinary. And to me, you you really embody that. At what point did you kind of find that 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 sense of of clarity, a vision of this is who I am as an artist and this is what I need in order to to continue to develop? I learned at a very early age that I forget who told me this, but someone said you have to be the boss of your talent and of your career and of what you want to do. I've always been very opinionated. <laughs> I like to take in information from various people, but I, I use that information in the best way I can. I, I It was very easy for me. And I, I guess that that summer in Aspen was sort of where that happened. I was in a voice teacher studio who shall remain nameless. And she just, <laughs> she just, in my opinion, didn't know how to teach people how to sing. I mean, it was an exercise in how to relax and that was great, but singing is so high intensity that yes, you should be, your body should have a a level of being relaxed, but there was nothing that identified or that helped me with that intensity part. Then I went into another voice teacher studio that summer in Aspen. I said, you know, that teacher's not working for me. And then I went in this guy's studio and I just sat there and he told everybody who came into the studio the same thing. And, I, and as a person that was listening to singers all the time, I thought that, well, I hear the problems that they have, but he's telling them all they have the same problem. And that's not really, you know, useful, but it was sort of like, that was his thing. He knew how to tell people that, and that was it. And then I went into another person's studio and I watched and observed their lessons and they told everybody something different. They talked about things that I'd never heard of before, like resonance and like, you know, and how to, you know, get that to happen and how necessary it was to sing. And I thought, uh, and the one thing about those three experiences was that that was the person that had the, the more substantial career actually on stage. Doesn't mean that those two people didn't know what they were talking about, but they were talking in sort of a theoretical point from a theoretical point of view. And he was talking from a pragmatic, practical, like this is what you have to do to make it happen. And I think what I learned in that experience is that uh, my first ever voice teacher told me if somebody tells you, tells everybody that comes in their studio the same thing, <laughs> you know, run. And if somebody starts to bother your high notes, because, because that's the, the, the part of your voice that always worked, 
and he would that you know, came from nature for whatever reason, you should also just run. So the, the, that was I had sort of an idea of what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to make it happen, and um, for me, it was very easy to shut people sort of out and down. Uh, and that's not easy for a lot of singers. The biggest problem is they're all looking for the magic pill. I learned from that experience that there's no magic pill, that there's a little bit you can take from this person and a little bit you can take from this person and a little bit from this person. And you can build a technique or a system of singing that works for you. And that, that's what I've tried to do over. I mean, I'm still doing it as I go into different repertoire and I change and I try different stuff, you know. But I also learned very early that I didn't want a lot of opinions. So I don't coach, like I don't go to a pianist or, or conductor or somebody to help me learn my music and that kind of thing, as a lot of singers do. I try to figure it out on my own. Uh, and that's very controversial uh, because, of course, coaches don't like the fact that I say that. Uh, but I don't coach. I learn my music on my own. And if I find that I need help, I go to somebody that's a good musician that's not trying to tell me how to sing it, but they're telling me where something is right or wrong, uh, be it a rhythm or pitch or something. And then I like take all their notes down and I go back by myself and I try to figure it out, you know, and that's, I've always been that type of curious artist. I love singing and I love the art of singing. So learning how to do it was very important to me. And when you're doing that, are you, are you, are you evaluating uh, success by ear, or are you recording your sessions for yourself and then playing it back to yourself? Sometimes both, but it's not about by ear. I never go by ear. It's yeah. more about uh, I will record the the session or uh, how it feels to me. You know, I can feel if a note doesn't. Again, over time and of learning how my my body and my voice work, I can feel when a note doesn't feel right. And so I'll ask who's ever listening, "Hey, how was that note?" Some people say, "Oh, it's good." You know, but no, no. Specifically, tell me what what was good about it? Don't just tell me it was good. Tell me what was good about it or what was bad about it. And then I can figure out how to fix it from there. And then the next time I come into rehearsal, I ask, hey, how did that note sound that time? You know, and there are people that you get into a rehearsal situation and you know the people and that will tell you the truth. <laughs> and so you go to that person that will tell you the truth and you say, hey, how was that note? You know, and what, what from your ear, what was it missing? And, and they'll give you their opinion. And you, as the artist and the technician, have to figure out how to make it work. So all that makes sense to me on the on the technical side. Again, when you're when you're just in the the nascency of of formulating yourself as an artist, are you also trying to think in terms of the trajectory and the sustainability of the career? And as you're doing that, how you know what what models are you looking to to think about what roles to take when in what houses and at what cadence at what pace? I mean, how how do you because you know clearly your your own best counsel in terms of your musicianship there's a whole other aspect of the of the career of course and so how do you manage that that piece? i mean at, a, at the earliest i mean i was never anybody's favorite so it took a while for me to get to get to a point where i was at the tenor in demand and it was only when i started singing more challenging repertoire i never thought about trajectory i thought about the moment like what and I always used to, I would always tell myself, nobody cares what you're working towards. <laughs> they only care what you can do for them now, you know? And I was always more interested in finding the thing that I could do well now. When I could only sing high and loud, I never sang anything requiring me to sing soft because I didn't know how to do it. That's how I kept steadily building. I never thought about 
what was to come. I thought about the longevity. I wanted to sing. I want to sing for as long as I want to sing. And I've never wanted to sing for as long as some of these other singers that sang into their you know 70s. I, I would never want to do that. Yes, I am my own best counsel. However, um, there are people's opinions who I'm not paying that I take seriously. And that's a, that's the thing. I, I mean, I was talking to young singers I think just yesterday and I said, you have to be careful with the advice that people are giving you that you're paying. Is the voice teacher like a pharmacist? I mean, like, like the pharmaceutical industry? They're just going to give you a Band-Aid so you can have to keep coming back to them? Or is the coach going to tell you, hey, keep singing this repertoire because it's a repertoire that I'm good at, so you'll keep going back to that coach? You know, you have to be very cognizant of that. And I've always been very attuned to, you know, if the people are, if I'm paying them, they have every incentive to tell me what I want to hear. So I go to the people that I'm not paying and just say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, how did that sound? Were you in the audience the other night? Did my voice come across in the way that I think it's coming across? And taking that in and using it for what I can, you know, it's not, I'm not always right. They're not always right, but it all goes by trial and error. And over time, you start to feel the way the performance goes or the way this moment in the performance goes. And if you ask someone that's, that's there listening, you can sort of gauge how that worked out. I'm a very uh, in tune physically and kinesthetically and everything else in terms of my singing. I pay attention to those things. And so, and so when you're, you know, both in the era of VHS tapes and in the era of YouTube, again, in terms of the cadence of when you start taking on Rodemes, when you start taking on Tannhäuser, is there a kind of idealized model of a career that you thought of, of someone who did that exceptionally well and you're, and you're thinking about that? Or is it's just much more instinctual and, you know, you're noodling around with things in your private time and then thinking, I'm going to be ready for Siegfried in, in 10 years or in, oh. insert, insert crazy idea. Yeah, well, when I was in, in, in undergrad, I learned the entire role of Kalaf. I don't know if I was ever going to sing Kalaf, but I learned the entire role, cover to cover. And the same thing with Don Jose. I have said no every time until I just started saying yes to, I said yes to Don Jose maybe five years ago. And I said yes to, because I had a lot of respect for those parts, but there's no one career. I mean, there are a few of them. Um, for instance, Bergonzi, you know, you know, and his singing of uh, Bel Canto to Verdi, you know, that, that sort of transition and how he went back and forth between the Bel Canto roles and the big Verdi roles, you know. Placido Domingo sing, singing everything from, you know, Zarzuela to Wagner. I would be bored if I sang the same thing all the time. And so I looked to these, these artists that went back and forth and how long their career lasted and sang a lot of different things and how long their career lasted. Uh, and then there are ones, you know, John Vickers is the tenor that I, between Bergonzi and Vickers, you know, those are the two tenors that I think are, are the bee's knees. <laughs> so I want to do everything that they did. Uh, and so I look at their repertoire and when they added certain things and the things they sang versus the thing they didn't sing. And I try to emulate that in a certain way, but the way I choose my rep is by what people want to hire me to sing. And if they want to hire me to sing it, uh, I'll look at it and then I'll say no, or I'll say yes. There was a student that I had very early on and she's, she kept telling me, well, I'm a full lyric soprano. I should be singing. I said, but if everybody thinks, that, if everybody else thinks that you're Susanna, so every time you go in and singing the Countess for them or singing these big lyric soprano parts, they're offering you Susanna. That's your Susanna. You're not that other part. You know, you're only what the business is hiring you for. So when offers come, 
I think about that and I think about the schedule and what's next and what's around it and, and how long it will take me to learn it. And I sort of plan out things that way. And then there are things that are just a dream, like singing Tom Horser. I'm going to, I'm singing it because I don't know if I can, um, but I want to do it. So I'm going to do it and we'll figure it out. I'll know, I'll know pretty soon if I can or can't. You have the courage or convictions about your own personal taste, for instance, just to pluck a random example out of nowhere. You know, you sing Handel very beautifully, but you don't really want to sing Handel, right? You want to, you want to sing Verdi. So that your, your taste comes into play, I think, there, and you have exceptional taste. And then I think secondarily, I, I do think that you're at the position in your career where the power dynamics have really shifted. And I think that you're, you're uh, far greater in control of you dictating what you want to sing and where you want to sing it and, and on what and on what timetable, which just gives you greater freedom to to within the boundaries of logic. But, there, you know, it seems to me like you're you're right in the pocket at the moment of of being able to to assert greater control over that. To an extent, I mean, still, it's a business, you know, making artists business. And if I want to sing Chenier and no one's doing Chenier, I can't sing Chenier. That's that's just the bottom line. I've tried to, to encourage as many people as I can to to let me sing Peter Grimes, but that hasn't happened. I think if people feel like they can get Russell Thomas now, that uh, they they would want to hire him, you know. But I also, if you know, Grimes is expensive and no one comes to see it, so people don't want to do it, you know. So that's the brass yeah. tax of it. We all get to a point in our careers or our lives, no matter what business or we're we're in, where we get a bit more sort of control over what we want to do. I've always tried to do that, even when I had no power, no control, no nothing. I've always tried to, I don't work with people I don't want to work with. I don't um, do things that don't make me comfortable. And at a certain point, if it, you know, if that means I get to stay home, I just stay home. I'll drive Uber, but I don't want to do something that, I don't want to do something that I don't want to do. I've never been uh, that kind of singer. Singers are, are always so concerned about the work uh, and and about having work. I am as well, but at a certain point, the quality of the work is more important to me than anything else. Yeah, which gets to the fundamental question of 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 your sense of satisfaction as an artist in 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 the career, right? Which is that there's the potential danger where you're you're just kind of going from gig to gig. And I don't want to ascribe this to you, but I have the sense still that you you still get a lot of joy and satisfaction out of the act of singing. Is it because you're exerting, you're not going to take work just to take it? Is that is that how you've been able to maintain that sense of joy in it? I think I've, I've done well at that, but I I still, there's still so much I want to do. I, I feel still like I'm, I still feel as though I'm oversaturated in in the business. I'm, I'm sort of everywhere all the time. There are some artists like Lorraine Hutt-Leverson, and I look at her career, and I remember from quite early, like watching her sing. Um, and hearing her sing and it was she was never the artist that was sort of going from gig to gig to gig I'm pretty sure she probably did that sometimes there was never a performance that she did that people didn't remember it and talk about it for a very long time I've always wanted to have that kind of career that kind of autonomy over my art Uh, and it's not easy to do I uh, look at some uh, at a career like that, and I would love to just when when I appear <laughs> that it was something it was a special event and not just because there was another check involved or whatever the case is, but because it was it was important work that was being done and something that I really love each time. 
that's not always ideal because I have a son and <laughs> I have a mortgage and there's, a, there, you know, you have to take care of those things. But that would be, uh, uh, again, just modeling a career, just thinking about a career that it wasn't just every time someone asked that you appeared, you appeared when you wanted to do good work and you knew it was going to be quality work. And that's the kind of singer that I would like to sort of be in this stage of my life. I've sort of done almost everything I've wanted to do. If I never sang again, I've had a career bigger than or greater than I ever dreamed it would be. Now I think it's time for myself to think past just performing and going from gig to gig to gig. And sort of that's where I am. I do find joy in it because I'm singing rep that I want to sing. I'm working with people generally that I want to work with. Um, uh, I enjoy the people when I'm in a situation, uh, when I'm in a rehearsal situation. And if ever I'm not, I don't enjoy it. I walk away from it. Uh, I've not had to do that uh, too many times, but yeah. Or threatened to do that too many times, but that, that's sort of that's sort of the way the way it is. Yeah, you did something incredibly courageous. Now, just two weeks ago, which is that in between singing performances of Radames, um, you bailed the Met out of out of a tight spot by going to New York and singing Rodolfo, which I think is a role you hadn't sung in five years at that point. Yeah. So that to me, is is demonstrative of the opposite of what you just described, which is actually that I think that, and and, and maybe you're a house divided upon yourself, which is just that I, I think that my sense in working with you as a colleague is you, 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 you feel a real sense of uh, engagement and obligation to the improving the business in, in, in general. So maybe just talk to us a little bit about why you would do that to yourself. And then, and then once you did do it to yourself, you know, what was was that was that gratifying? Did did you prove something to yourself? Were you just being an excellent colleague? Because in fact, you know, doing doing that for them was a demonstration of being, you know, an, an extraordinary colleague of of helping out uh, an institution in need. They're twofold. I hadn't been to the Met in a few years. I was supposed to be there maybe three times during 2020, 2021. Uh, but because of COVID, I wasn't able to be there. And even before COVID, I was supposed to do my first time from Delilah um, in January, February of this of 22. And that was canceled, you know, in 2018 or 19 or something along those lines. There was one, a desire to be around and be there because I hadn't been there in so long. And then the second uh, situation was that, yes, it was to help the business or to help that company, that institution. Sometimes you feel like if you do, uh, if you ex extend yourself to someone uh, or an institution, they will be grateful and maybe extend to you <laughs> the things that you need or want. Uh, so that was one of the, that, those were the sort of uh, the factors. I, I didn't think I would have a problem with singing it. Um, I was more concerned with how singing Rodolfo on a Friday, traveling <laughs> 6 a.m. the next morning uh, on Saturday, and singing a Sunday matinee of Radames, I was more concerned about that. And actually, I thought it was the best matinee I've ever sung in my life. So, so I, like Morris Robinson said to me, <laughs> uh, maybe you should go sing Radames like every week somewhere. I mean, a Rodolfo every Rodolfo. week somewhere, and uh, and then come back and sing because you sound great. You know, um, it was one of those moments where you know it sort of worked out. Now, is the Met happy? Still happy? They asked me to fill in for their role. 
they're hurt awful. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but I, they got to a performance done. And um, I was very happy with my Radames. And I, I was happy with the work that I did in New York as well. It was exciting. It was it was foolish, but it was really exciting. And you don't get exciting sometimes in this business. It becomes sort of a, you people are doing everything by roped or however you call it. You know, they're just doing it. So like, let's make opera, add water and stir. You know, sometimes that's the feeling uh, you get when you're doing it. Where does the adrenaline come from now? What 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 are the what are the circumstances that get you? Because I see you, you're very indulgent to me before performances. You seem very, very zen. Um, is is there is there an adrenaline rush for you in performance, before performance, after? Where where does that come from now? It's all of them. There's a. I mean, if if it's uh, if I didn't get nervous before a performance, I probably wouldn't do this. That there are so many other things you can do, make more money, and and not be so stressed. And where you're not investing 100 percent of your person to do it. It's the music. I, I really enjoy music theater. I enjoy opera. I enjoy my colleagues. I enjoy you know doing the work. Um, it's not something that everybody can do, and it's not something that everybody can do well. Um, so I know that I have an, I feel like a, an obligation, uh, sometimes to do good work and to, and to be committed to the work, you know, and I'm very committed to the work and not just to my own work, but just also to encouraging my colleagues and encouraging a uh, younger generation of singers, um, to do good work, um, and to be the best version of themselves artistically that they can be. And I've tried to do that and I continue to try to do that, um, through my work. What is the greatest challenge of taking on the role of a fellow, which, of course, we will be blessed with those performances uh, about a year from now. And in fact, I think this is true. Uh, directly after Aida, you're going to Covent Garden to also sing, sing that role. The greatest challenge of singing Otello is that Mario Del Monaco existed. <laughs> that's, the, that's the greatest challenge. But I think it's just act two. I mean, it's, the role is not very long. It doesn't go very high. It doesn't go very low, but it it's act two is so intense. It's so intense emotionally. And I'm usually a singer that can compartmentalize and and you know put the the emotions over here and the singing technique over here. But that's the only opera, the only role that I've ever done where I can't do that. Uh, which is probably great. But the emotion creeps into the voice and into your performance, and that's when it becomes strenuous. Um we have this saying in opera, um, oh, at the end of the night, I feel like I can do it all over again. The only the only time that I don't feel I can do it all over again is after singing Otello. And that's not a feeling that I enjoy because I don't, I'm thinking that I'm not doing something right. One of the greatest interpreters of, of that, who you all probably know very well, told me, oh, just don't sing it so much. And, and I haven't learned how to do that. You know, Placido told me that a long time ago uh, when I told him I was taking on this role. He said, oh, you just can't sing it, you know? And it was the same thing that the, the great Wagnerians tell me about Tannhäuser when I ask them, how do I make, you know, Tannhäuser singable? Oh, stop singing it. Don't sing it. You got to think, you know, you got to, no, you sing it, but you don't sing it. You know, it's like, a, you know, you just like singing. You have to feel like you're singing in the shower. And Placido told me, oh, you just have to speak. And I don't know, and I haven't learned that that technique in the performance yet and and hopefully i will learn it one day but as of now i'll just keep singing <laughs> keep singing it but act two act two is 
the killer for the tenor. And then you still have two more acts after that. One, one of the other uh, miraculous thing for me about, about opera singers is the ability to overcome the knowledge that you are competing against everyone's uh, sometimes um, altered nostalgic memory of the greatest performance they ever heard or the most pristine recording they ever heard, which more often than not, you know, the role of Tannhäuser on those recordings has been made over the course of three weeks, not three hours. And people, so people have a kind of fixed idea in their heads about the vocalism and it's quite uh, in a way difficult to, to be able to, to transcend that. I agree with you. I think it's the blessing and the curse of recordings. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of opera and I listen to a lot of recordings and, uh, but I try to always listen to the live ones uh, and you can hear sort of the, the mistakes or you can hear where the singer gets into trouble. Uh, but on these pristine sort of studio recordings, you don't get that. And so, yes, you are competing against somebody's unrealistic expectation of what it should be based on those recordings. I remember having a conversation with Tammy Wilson um, when she was here for St. Matthew Passion that, that uh, very similar to what you described. I mean, she, she has extremely good uh, keyboard skills and so she teaches herself all of her roles. Um, so she's uh, learning as older right now. She's gonna debut it in Santa Fe this summer. And, and she was talking about her, her process and her process involves listening repeatedly to every known recording ever made of every role that she's learning and then figuring a way up to skim the cream off the top and decide what she likes, what she doesn't like and discard everything else, which I just think the, the confidence and the presence of mind that is necessary in order to do that, I find to be that that feels miraculous to me, uh, but actually sounds a little bit similar to to your own. I do, yeah, I do the same. I do the same thing. I listen to every possible recording of something, and I take the oh, he didn't take a breath there. I like that, you know. And in some of my scores, you'll see, you know, Jose Carreras, HC, you know, you know JC, you know, nineteen sixty something recording, you know, that that's where that idea came from. Because sometimes you get into a rehearsal process, and the conductor is like, "Why are you doing that?" Oh, well, it was with this conductor on this recording that they did this, you know? So, yeah, I like to do that. Yeah, That's always a source of incredible fascination for me as well, which is the the, the negotiation of the power dynamic with with the conductor and, and how, you know, how, how this collaboration can give you what you need, the support that you need in order to give your best performance while still allowing that individual to, to believe that they are uh, fully in charge. I mean, I think it's a very, very difficult dance. It is a very difficult dance. Yes. Can you describe your process for preparing a role? We were actually just talking about that a little bit. Also getting into character and does it change? Um, does your process actually change from role to role? No, the process is the same. I uh, I speak, you know, very little of foreign languages, but I'm familiar with them. Uh, but because I'm not fluent, I go through and I translate the role uh, in everybody else's parts in the opera just so I know what's happening phrase by phrase. Before This is before I learn any note of it. And usually while I'm translating, I'm listening to recordings or in the background somewhere, you know, and I'm translating the, the, the language uh, into English and putting my subtext in. And then I start to learn the pitches, usually a few pages at a time. And, and sometimes I don't sing them on the text that's there. I just sing it on a la or some vowel um, just to see how it goes. 
and then I start to put the words on. So it's a multi-layered process. And if it's a it fits in a role that I think is easy, sort of like Radames, for instance, I learned in a couple of weeks. But something like Otello, I started learning it a year before I was going to ever sing it for anybody in public. So it took me about a year to learn that part. I've been learning Tannhäuser for the last year and a half, every free chance I get. I'm past the first act now. I learn in stages. Unlike some singers, some singers can like be in rehearsal for one show or performances for one show and sing something else. I can't do that. So I have to do it on my free time, uh, which is not <laughs> very often on our free time. So usually I learn the sort of meat and potatoes of a role months before. And then as I get close to the performances, I will start to try to do things committed to memory. Uh, but it, it's a long process for me because I can't multitask roles sometimes, especially when a role like Otello is so challenging. I can't sing something else while I'm singing that. It just doesn't happen, can't work. Well, the other factor, right, is is pacing and stamina, right? Yeah. So so something like Tannhäuser, how do you know you can do it until you're 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 in performance conditions, right? You, you don't have an opportunity to understand if you're likely to run out of gas until you're competing against the orchestra in, I mean, not in performance conditions. And obviously, I, I guess it's like never run a minute for my life. So I can't say that it's like running a marathon, but I imagine it's, you know, it's about building blocks. But I mean, you know, every, every role you just mentioned, the structure of it is is so different. Certainly Rodame's, I mean, you know, you're you're coming out of the gate with one of the most notoriously difficult arias to sing in in the entire canon, and it's it's right there, right at the top, right? Yeah, I mean, it is it is difficult, but uh, that's that's why I learned. That's why the process that I use is that way. Uh, because, um, for instance, Tannhäuser, I asked somebody, "Oh, what's the hardest part?" They like the whole thing. So I'm starting at the beginning, <laughs> and and then I learn it in chunks and. And I sing the large chunks and I see where it's causing me problems. And and you sort of figure out, okay, why is it causing me problems there? Is it because I'm in the middle of singing Radames right now? Or is it, you know, what what's the difficulty in it? And then the same thing for Otello. Uh, when, when I asked about Otello, somebody said Act 2. So I learned Act 2 first and then figured out how to sing Act 2 and then added the other acts after that. You know, singing Bohem, Act 3 of Bohem for, is the hardest act. Everybody thinks first act is either the Manina, but no, it's Act 3 where the tessitura is high and the orchestration is thicker and you're singing, you know, over and over and over again. How does that feel? And so I learned Act 3 first when I learned Bohem the first time. That's my process, but somebody, somebody else may disagree with that. That's how I do it. Uh, what, what's on your career bucket list and why? Tannhorzer, because I think it's the perfect opera. Um, and oh, sign. yeah, I think it's, I think it's the absolute perfect opera. Um, uh, and I don't like Wagner, but but I like that one, you know, kind of like I don't like Handel, but I like Samson, you know, Tannhäuser, Peter Grimes, not a perfect opera, but I think it's uh, it plays to all of my strengths, it plays to all of my strengths vocally, and I think dramatically it would be the biggest challenge that I've ever uh had uh on stage and also because i'm a huge fan and i've always been a huge fan of john vickers i would love to sing that role because my hero sang that role shenye just because it's one of the i'm not a verismo guy but you know that opera again and all the great tenors have sung it and i i would feel like i'm not (laughs) 
you know, and, and, and that line of great singers, if I don't sing that opera, uh, or great tenors, especially if I don't sing that opera. Uh, Boito's Mephistopheli, um, just, again, it's, it's just not, the, not a perfect opera, but the tenor role is just beautiful. It's a beautifully written, yeah. I mean, it's one of those big ones that, you know, companies don't want to do. Manolesco, just because the tenor role is, you know, again, Richard Tucker, another hero of mine, um, was the king of that opera. Um, and so I want to sing it. And it's, again, it, it, these are all the, the hardest, people consider them the hardest operas to sing. So Forza was one of those on that list. And I sang Forza and ev everyone thought, said that, oh, it's so difficult, you know, but it was the easiest thing in the world for me. And I felt bad because it was so easy. It's just so easy, but it fits my voice like a glove. Yeah. So those are, those are the operas. If I, I, I don't feel like I can stop singing until I've sung those operas. And when I've sung those operas, then I'll, I'll reevaluate whether I want to keep singing. But those are the operas that I want. I just want to do before the day comes and I don't want to do this anymore. Well, I, I think I can speak for the assembled that, that uh, everyone is desperate that you not stop singing. Yeah. I want to end uh, on, a, on a grace note. And so I'm, I'm grateful as always uh, for the inimitable Carol Henry who, who, uh, in her comment has left us out on a grace note, which is not a question, but a comment, great interview and great format. I only wish I could have been there live so you could see my smiles and my heart thumping. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Thank you Russell. This this is really, really, really generous of you to do, especially on a night uh, before a performance. Um, as always, I just want to thank all of you for your incredible support. Um, it's been so, so, so gratifying for all of us um, to be back in the theater this year uh, to feel all the support, to feel the primal need for us all to, to get together and experience the beauty and the wonder and, and the transformative power of opera. So again, thank you all so much for being here tonight. And, and thank you, Russell and Tertitoy for tomorrow night. Thank you. And thank you to the audience as well, because from the stage, we can feel that energy and that support. It helps us a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much. Tickets to LA Opera's 22-23 season are available now at laopera.org. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>